committed to sharing cultural diversity through food. Welcome to El Paso Food Voices. Welcome. I'm Meredith E. Abarca, your hostess for today's episode. El Paso Food Voices explores El Paso, Texas food landscapes by gathering food-based stories from our residents. This project offers a taste of a living history that speaks of ethnic and racial cross-cultural connections. If we are what we eat, we are committed to highlighting the food-based culture and history of the city. In this spirit, let's begin our conversation with our heads, Dr. Sabiha Han, Assistant Professor of Digital Media Production at the University of Texas at El Paso. Welcome to the show. Can we begin by first telling us a little bit who you are so our audience can, can know you, a little bit about your cultural background, how long you've been in El Paso, and then also a little bit about the overall um, focus of your research as it's connected to food. Sure. Um, well, uh, my uh, husband and I moved to El Paso in 2011, um, and we mo- were moving from Los Angeles, and um, Let's see. Uh, we are both of Pakistani origin. Um, and so a lot of our food traditions actually were mirrored in a lot of, or at least not specific foods, but like kind of uh, flavor profiles we saw kind of reflected in the region's cooking. Uh, heavy use of cumin, coriander, things like that. And, you know, we were coming from Los Angeles, so obviously you have access to food from different states in Mexico, but somehow I feel like because of the proximity to the Mexican border in El Paso, you see dishes you don't necessarily see in the metropolises of the United States where there's a diverse uh, immigrant populations. Um, Let me interrupt you. What, what are some of those dishes that you see here that are different? Okay. Well, basically the only dish that really stuck out to me was picadillo. Ah, Okay. Because picadillo is the exact replica of a dish we have. Well, I don't know which ones came first, but <laughs> basically um, we have a dish called alu kima, which means um, alu means potato, kima means ground beef or ground meat. So when I first saw picadillo at a burrito shop uh, on the west side, I was just like, wait a second, that looks familiar. And then you combine that with the hand-rolled flour tortillas, which are also part of our traditions in the Punjab region of Pakistan and India, um, I just felt like I was home, really. that There was kind of this moment where, I don't know, it was kind of a dramatic moment for me, like culinarily wise. <laughs> mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit more, um, just, just so we understand the, the your interest in food, because um, one of your, your areas of research is, is concentrated on food studies. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about us? You know, what is it that you do with food in terms of your research? Yes, of course. Um, I guess I'm interested in this... Uh, Conceit I keep um, coming across of animated food or food that speaks. And I, I study documentary film largely. Uh, I also um, am involved in making documentary media. So one thing I started to notice is that there's a lot of um, kind of reference to food, either in terms of like infographics or graphics where food kind of comes to life. Um, And then obviously, if you're kind of conversant with the sustainable food movement, there's this growing sense that food is a kind of living entity because it's comprised of living beings, plants and animals. So kind of there's a lot of in the discourse of sustainable food about, you know, that aspect of food that we kind of need to get closer to that source of its um, vitality. Um, So one, some of the, um, 
I guess, so my book project that I'm kind of currently developing is called Moving Food. So it's about both the affective qualities of food as well as um, kind of accounting for the movement of food commodities around the world. And I kind of see these twin tendencies in the documentary media I study um, that, you know, food is increasingly becomes this kind of com- commodity after the Second World War. You see also a kind of a lot of discourse regarding its um, affective qualities. And you can see this particularly in like advertising media where food literally like walks around and talks to you, like in, in the context of a commercial. Uh, one of the first commercials uh, was, I guess, there's a cereal called Maple, M-A-P-O. And I guess the the cereal or the the figure or the, the kind of mascot of that brand dances around and things like that. So I, I just like this idea of like food coming to life and being independent of us as human beings at the same time that we, you know, obviously depend on it for our own nourishment. Right. Well, we obviously have a relationship with food, um, uh, food as a, as a living be- entity, as you said, um, I have, I'm familiar with some of your early, or, or some of your work, as you said, and not necessarily earlier, in which you also talk about sort of food stories. Um, and, and clearly, an advertisement is telling us a story, right? That's how it's, that's one way of speaking uh, about food. But people also speak, obviously, about food. And, and have you been interested, are you interested on, on, on people's food stories, per se? Um, do they form part of your work? Um, yes, for sure. Um, so, but I guess in my research, I'm not necessarily interested in the stories that individuals have to say about their food. I'm interested more in a kind of systemic industrial appropriation of the language of story to either sell certain products or to kind of, um, somehow make their products more palatable. Uh, you may notice that there's a lot of dis again this kind of greenwashing of the f- industrial food space, right? That um, you know you can scan this QR code and learn about where your food come from, where your food comes from. You know you can learn about the story of this egg that you just bought. Um, and so these type of moves on the part of I guess food producers that produce food on an industrial scale and distribute it likewise. Uh, they've somehow appropriated a language of story um, that isn't really kind of endemic to that space. So that's my research is really interested in that, like the ways in which the idea of a food story has kind of migrated across uh, different different domains. Um, as far as my my creative production, that is actually more more focused on individual stories. Uh, and I can speak a little bit about that unless you had a yeah. follow-up question. Actually, I do have follow-up what you're talking right now in terms of, of so the, the stories that the, the, the industry creates that that are not necessarily of a place, but they somehow become to that place. Is there an example from from a food item in, in that is very prevalent in the stores here in El Paso that you can give us an exa- uh, give us a concrete example of what you're talking about in terms of this sort of more systemic uh, sure. industry yeah. stories? Yeah, I mean, I can, well, I can talk about a very kind of, I guess when I was, this is not about El Paso, but I was in Ireland a couple years back and I just, I like to go to grocery stores whenever I visit a different country because I just feel like you get to know that country in a different way. Uh, And I love to cook. So that's, uh, you know, I I feel close to that experience. But I saw this really curious um, display uh, near the egg area. 
And basically each egg had a little QR code on it. And if you scanned that, you could see the story of that egg from its birthplace, well, you know, from its, its whatever, mother hen to how it got to where it was. And somehow this sense of like creating a, creating a sense of the logistical transparency of that egg is supposed to kind of make consumers feel better about their food. Um, but, you know, at the same time, whenever I see any move towards transparency, I think of I, the first question I ask is, you know, who's transparency? Like, you know, sure, you're being transparent about the underlying structure, but who, who, whose interests are in that structure? <laughs> you know, like, um, you know, just because it's transparent doesn't mean it's necessarily something beneficial for us. Um, and then in terms of, I don't know, in terms of local examples, I don't know if I've seen that, but I mean, I have a, an example from the U.S. Um, of, there's a project called the Internet of Tomatoes, which basically seeks to track a tomato plant from seed to store. Um, and um, they're interested in kind of, basically it's called a field to sensor, um, yeah, seed to sensor, sorry, seed to sensor tracking. So again, it's the same idea that, you know, consumers want to know where their food comes from. So let's give them that data. Um, and, um, you know, let's, you know, and a lot of this is motivated by um, <clears throat> um, by food scares and, you know, um, attacks to the food system or just kind of um, safety recalls, things like that, mm -hmm. and wanting to kind of get ahead of those. And, you know, arguably companies are also interested in saving their bottom line, right? Like <laughs> they don't want to necessarily waste product <laughs> right? Um, in the midst, you know, like the romaine lettuce scare of a few years ago, as you may recall. But um, yeah, so th those are some examples I've seen in big business, like in big food companies. Um, as for local, I don't know if I have any local examples offhand. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think too if I if I can think of any local examples that that have that kind of story that you're describing. I don't think I've ever seen it. Um, I mean, I've seen how advertisement has tried to create an image of you know all El Paso and 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 or certain kinds of Mexican foods in advertisement, but I don't know about the kind of story that you're addressing here. Um, but let's change the topic a little bit and talk about something else that, that, that I'm really fascinated about your work. And I think you you frame it a minute ago as your creative work. So you have your what you are framing as your academic research work, maybe, and your creativity or your creative work. Um, I'm interested in a documentary that, that you've been working on, um, and I believe the name is Remembering How We Eat. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what the documentary is about? What, what is your vision for this documentary? Um, and I believe this documentary does sort of center on on, on gathering stories from people here in the area. Um, can you, can you just tell us a little more about this creative aspect of your work? Sure. Um, I, I think I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how I came to the idea and you know, first what the idea is and then how I came to it. Okay. So the central premise of this project is that um, just my observation as a newcomer to El Paso, I was fascinated by um, the movement towards decolonizing cuisine and kind of recovering ancestral foods you know, that go a couple generations back or more from, you know, young people's parents and grandparents and great grandparents. And that move backwards in time to solve future current and future problems of health and sustainability was really fascinating to me, in part because um, I had witnessed a similar move um, in my own experience as a Pakistani American. And um, 
It's interesting because um, so when I was growing up, my grandmother, my paternal grandmother came to live with us when I was around between the ages of eight or 10 or something like that. And um, she's really interesting lady um, in the sense that she, um, I mean, she was, she was both cosmopolitan and learned and things like that. But then she also uh, clung to a lot of like herbal traditions for health and beauty and things like that. So she would, for instance, brush her teeth with this piece of bark that in um, Urdu or Punjabi is called dandasa, <clears throat> which means a kind of like, um, I don't know, dandasa just means like, I guess, teeth cleaner. <laughs> but basically, <laughs> like hunks of bark, and she would just chew on them and, you know, just kind of scrub them around her teeth. And they had, you know, she had super clean teeth and, <laughs> you know, she didn't have any problems. And she just used that, despite the fact that, you know, she would she basically was like a colonel's wife who met all these dignitaries and, you know, like she had like this interesting um, mixed experience in her life. And then she would color her hair, but she wouldn't use hair dye. She would use gooseberry, dried gooseberries. And so she would boil them on the stove or have my mom help her do that. And then apply this, you know, pungent elixir on her, on her locks and then sit in the sun and wait until it dried and, you know, just had all these cool, um, you know, herbal concoctions and recipes that she used. And interestingly, like my mother's generation, um, she also grew up in the military. Um, so she had a very different kind of connection to traditional remedies and things like that. I mean, she, uh, I mean, she still, I guess in a way, if you're, if you grew up in the sixties within a kind of military family, you're a kind of committed modernist, like <laughs> you actually believe in the modernist enterprise because you witnessed it happening in Pakistan. Um, in the Pakistan of the sixties was like, you know, on its way up, you know, like the, you know, institutions were working people, there was a middle class. There's a lot of reasons why I, I understand why people were kind of invested in modernity at that time. Uh, now, obviously, it's a much different story, but I guess I, I didn't, I hadn't really gotten this ancestral knowledge from my own mom, but I had, I kind of, it kind of skipped a generation, in other words, which is what I'm trying to say. So that same kind of temporal, um, I guess, move I saw witnessed in the border region among um, the various food activists I met and came across and befriended. And, and so I was really interested in the ways in which um, ultimately both efforts were an attempt to kind of decolonize culture <laughs> and, and really kind of understand, um, you know, what was happening in our regions before British colonialism, colonialism Spanish colonialism, et cetera. Um, who, who are this, this um, agencies or this, this um, activists um, that you see this working in this effort of decolonizing um, the, the the Spanish, the Mexican, the indigenous, really the, the Native American um, or indigenous foods here in El Paso. When you, when you mentioned that the, you started working with with some activists here, who, who are these uh, people, organizations? What are we talking about? Okay, sure. And um, I'm not necessarily actively working with them, but I have, in, you know, in the past connected on various um, points in my project. But one one example is uh, La Semilla. Uh, La Semilla Farm, which is located in uh, Anthony, New Mexico. And they're not necessarily invested in indigenous foods, although I think they do grow some things like that. But I think they're interested in redefining agriculture for urban youth of um, Mexican and indigenous origin, right? 
um, and and helping them see this as a viable um, career, uh, especially when given the fact that so many people from Mexico and Central America are, you know, um, migrant laborers and exploited. And there's a sense that, you know, farming is not something you would do to, you know, advance your cause necessarily. So they're really invested in trying to kind of um, get get young um, urban um, youth from Mexican and indigenous backgrounds to kind of think in terms of, you know, even food policy, like trying to kind of frame or influence food policy and in the region and be, you know, be involved both in that way and also just in terms of doing the work. So, um, so it's very, a very interesting organization. Um, and then um, the other organization that comes to mind is La Mujer Obrera, and their work in um, central El Paso about um, both empowering women through economic development, but using food to do that, right? And then um, I guess also, I mean, they, they have, um, I have a friend who is a public health educator who's worked with them. Her name's Ruby Orozco Santos. And she, for instance, developed a curriculum for their daycare to um, not uh, both a curriculum and a lunch menu so that they wouldn't be dependent on commodity foods from the U.S. Um, school lunch program, but instead, um, you know, kind of rediscover the milpa-based cuisine, um, you know, things like beans, corn, squash, things like that, um, amaranth, um, and, you know, teach the both the ancestral value of these foods and the reasons why it was actually excised from the diet of the people in the region. So, right. Yeah, what you're talking about is what we are, what we know as Los Siete Guerreros. Are you familiar with that term? No. Los Siete Guerreros just means the refers to the indigenous, the basic um, foods of um, indigenous in Mesoamerica, which is you know amaranthus, uh, corn, squash, chili, beans, uh, cacti. Uh, I'm missing one. I'm missing one. Um, oh wow, I'm missing one. Squash. Squash. Yes. <laughs> um, so so when you you're talking about sort of the, the milpa, right? Eating out of the milpa is, is one of those siete guerreros, one of those basic um, indigenous uh, foods that has sustained people in the Americas for, you know, thousands of years. Are, are you by any chance familiar with the work that um, is coming out of one grab community? Um, yes, you. Um, I am. I haven't talked to them directly, but I've had students in my documentary class who've done films on their work. And so that's how I've gotten familiar with them. Yeah, because... Um, uh, Roman Wilcox and, and, and Andrea Wilcox um, are doing a lot of this issue of, of sustainability, of providing um, good quality food, uh, particularly in an area that is designated as a, as a food desert, um, and teaching in the process uh, young people how to cultivate, you know, how to grow food, how to how to how to how to cook with it. Um, so I think in some ways they also are tapping into this notion of sustainability. Um, in culturally sensitive, culturally uh, appropriate foods too. Um, so that's what I ask you if you were familiar with them. Um, wh- where is your project in terms of, of this, of this uh, documentary? Um, I know that a documentary can take years to actually be developed. Wh- where are you with, with remembering how to eat? Um, well, it's taken um, a little bit of a backseat um, due to the fact that I need to publish <laughs> for myself. <laughs> Um, but, um, it's interesting. It, it, it wasn't, it didn't turn out like I wanted to, because what I had imagined was going into the field, having a lot of observational footage, 
of people doing things, people working, but to a certain extent, you kind of get in the way as a filmmaker when you do that. When the, when you're documenting something as intent, labor intensive as, you know, growing food, like the people do not, people involved in that sort of work do not have time for you. And I totally understand that. And um, I also did not have given my other more pressing, I guess, <laughs> more urgent professional commitments. I wasn't able to do the work in that way. Um, but I have figured out ways to kind of think through that initial impulse for the project, right? That I'm an outsider to this border region and I'm observing certain trends or certain things happening in the food space. And so I want to talk about what those are in a personal way and kind of connect with other people who also have a different perspective or maybe, you know, um, some unique perspective on the food um, that they engage with here. Um, so one thing that I'm working on currently is, um, and this is with my friend I mentioned earlier, Ruby Orozco Santos, who's like a public health educator. She's also a yoga instructor. So she, you know, kind of wellness and um, whole person wellness is kind of a thing, um, one of her priorities. So she's actually not from this region. She's from um, South, uh, uh, state in southern Mexico. And um, she also has a narrative about her reaction to the food when she came to the border, um, to the northern border of Mexico. And um, so we, we're developing a short film about that common experience. And it, it, and it um, centers on the experience of encountering the flour tortilla. And in short, for me, encountering the flour tortilla was like I was coming home. <laughs> because I, you know, I, I like that burrito shop I mentioned earlier in the interview, right, that I went to the burrito shop, I saw Picadillo, aka Alukima. And then I saw, you know, these elderly ladies in the back hand rolling flour tortillas. And I was just like, those are like my aunts and grandma and, you know, like... <laughs> Not to flatten cultural differences, but I was just like, it was just like this very familiar scene that I wasn't expecting. Yeah, well, so, I, I personally don't necessarily think about it in terms of flattening cultural differences, but actually making cultural connections. Um, because I think that's that's really what I hear. That's when I hear your story. That's what I'm hearing is is you saw a connection here with picadillo and and, and flour tortillas, um, which are very specific to the northern area of Mexico. Um, they're not as common in southern parts of Mexico. You know they can grow corn over there. Here we ha we grow wheat, um, but I find this this and in Apostle Food Voices is trying to capture moments in in which we find those cultural connections. So you have the picadillo, you you have the the, the flour tortilla. Have you you live here for a few years now? You've worked with the community in different in different um, uh, uh, projects um, for the last couple of years. What other connections have you found in terms of your your the the, the food landscape of the of the desert here and the food landscape from your from Pakistan? Uh, well, I think the main one would be um, having a kind of, I guess you could call it the adjacent possible fl flavor profile. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I mentioned earlier, you know, that both cuisines rely on cumin, coriander. Um, and uh, I had this one instance when I first came to El Paso. Again, this is an early mo thing. And I, I made this, um, in Pakistan and India, it's a street food known as jat. And it's basically a kind of concoction, usually involving garbanzo beans, potatoes, onions, tomatoes, and then like a tamarind sauce, and then yogurt drizzled on top. 
So I brought this to my friend's house and, you know, I just brought it because it was just kind of a typical thing to bring to a party. And then it turns out that my the host, my friend's uncle, like basically devoured the entire thing because he was like, this is so amazing. And I was like, oh, that's curious. That's interesting. But then I was thinking, but why wouldn't it be amazing? It has all these common flavors, but kind of rearranged in a different way. So that was another kind of moment that got me thinking about you know, what other connections could there be between, you know, South Asian and Mexican cuisine? And I mean, obviously, you you know, there, there's, it's got to be from like, you know, basically Arab conquest is probably the main <laughs> colonial factor, I guess you could say. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, uh, if you go back long, far enough. Yes, yes. And I you know a lot of our, our influences here come from, oh, in Mexico, come from Spain and, you know, come from Andalusia. And that was, you know, uh, colonized by, by Arabs for a very long time. So, so you know, we, we think about rice pudding, for instance, that's, you know, arroz con leche. Um, you find it in so many different lineages of, of cultures. Um, uh, so to me, that's another example that I find in, in different places where I visit that, that one connection. Um, let me shift topics just a little bit because I think there's another topic um, in terms of uh, food studies Um that we have talked in the past before um, that we both share, and it's the concept of memory, food and memory, food in the senses, um, as something that is very central um, in different aspects of our work. Um, just talk to, can you talk to a little bit about us, uh, to us about your take on, on, on the power of food and memory? Sure. Um, well, I, I like, um, there's an ethnobotanist, Vir- Virginia Nazaria, whose work I really like. And she talks I know her, about- actually. She's wonderful. Oh, you know her in person? Yes, like I personally? Yes. Oh, yes. that's lucky. <laughs> um, anyway, so she writes about how things like seeds and plants that people bring from their home countries to the places they migrate, those contain memories, right? Um, it's like it's like a kind of um, material embodiment of food memories. And I mean, the stories I recounted about, you know, witnessing picadillo, flour tortillas, you know, tamarind sauce and rice pudding, like I, on the surface, it's like, well, duh, like you can, you know, I've read about those connections before, but somehow like seeing it in the flesh and tasting it. Um, I mean, it's kind of like this Proustian moment where you like eat the Madeleine and you're transported to, you know, this moment in the past that that's a type of. I feel like that's the way food works as a kind of conduit for memory. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one thing to read about the Arab conquest as like <laughs> influencing South Asian and Mexican and Spanish cuisine, but it's another thing to actually taste that familiar, I guess, flavor profile when you weren't necessarily expecting it. So, so I, I think there's a kind of also, there's a sense in which me- memories take root, particularly when in food, it's, it's almost a kind of spontane- spontaneity to it. Like it's something you weren't necessarily expecting. Um, there's another, um, I guess, um, mang- the prevalence of mangoes is another thing. Mangoes are huge in just Pakistani discourse about the past, about like people remembering, oh, the mangoes of that place in that year were amazing. Or <laughs> like my father-in-law has one where he, he, he tried to bring mangoes from Pakistan to the United States. And he re- just realized at last minute he can't do that. So he just ate them all uh, before going into security. So that, that's another moment, a moment where like mangoes kind of, um, I guess, mark time. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the thing is, I don't personally, I never experienced that, but this is part of like my family's, the way they talk, right? And, I, and I've met other Pakistani people who similarly, you know, um, just use the, like the mango as a kind of, like I said, like a kind of conduit for, a, you know, taking them to a specific time and place. Um, so yeah, so, and I don't know if it's the intensity of mango sweetness that, and the stickiness, like it's a very kind of involved fruit to consume. Uh, I don't know if that is part of it. Um, but, um, yeah, that's another, I guess, example of the intersection of food and memory that I've, that I've witnessed. Yes. Well, I, I think part of it is, 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 um, David Sutton, I'm sure you know his work, uh, cultural anthropologist, who has written a lot about um, the interconnection between the senses, uh, um, uh, synesthesia, all the senses working together um, to enhance memory or to recall uh, particular episodes in our lives. Um, what he basically is arguing is that food has the power to connect all the senses and make an experience of food sort of kind of, it becomes embodied. And then when you you know, encounter it again, whether it's the, the scent of, of a mango or the taste of a mango. Um, I have spoken to a number of people here in El Paso and, and they say something similar to what you said in terms of the mango, but they couch it on the, the frame of the, of the corn, you know, mm-hmm. um, having that, that connection to, to, to personal family stories, but also historical um, contents, um, you know, just the smell of corn, uh, having a relationship with that. So I think it's partly sensorial and partly also, there's a lot of affect, um, emotion, um, whether the foods themselves have the emotion, that's, that's up for debate, but the stories that we tell about them carry the emotion, I think. Um, I have just always talks about the seasonal, like, I mean, the, I think the seasonality of the food also matters, right? That, that you don't have access to that mango all the time. So that heightens the synesthetic experience of it in a way. Right, right. Um, you, you work with other projects and, 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 and digital production. Um, I mean, you, you're, you're in digital media production. Um, can you tell us what are the, some of the projects that you're working right now about, you know, using technology to help us, uh, you know, develop our knowledge or, or, or keep our knowledge about food or, or um, there's a particular project that I'm trying to get you to talk about that you've been working on lately. Yeah, sure. Um, that again, this ta- this project is because of the pandemic on hold. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I recently developed a the beginnings of a kind of platform for archiving food knowledge in the region, and um, I, co- I collaborated with a computer scientist at UTEP, um, Dr. David Novick, and um, basically we we c- created a kind of prototype for. Um, this project, which is called Recipe Hunt. And the premise is that a young person in the region is away at college and they're missing their favorite version of chile con queso. So they they go on a kind of quest to kind of figure out how to make it. They talk to various people along the way. And ultimately, I guess they either succeed or fail. But um, so basically, this is an infrastructure, a kind of model for getting younger generations involved in understanding ancestral foods or even contemporary foods that are, um, you know, part of the region's history and culinary profile. Um, In an ideal world, um, you know, we get back to our offices, we get back to our work. Um, 
where did you hope to see this this prototype um, uh, be in use? Uh, is it for 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 classroom use? What do you hope to to achieve with this archive um, that, that you're developing? Well, I feel like the success of this archive really depends on community engagement. And what I envision is that, you know, um, any number of food-related nonprofits in the region that are invested in, you know, transmitting ancestral food knowledge to the next generation would become involved and bring their stories, bring their recipes for the benefit of their own youth. Um, so that's the kind of the piece of the puzzle that needs to be further developed. Um, but um, ultimately, it, it will depend on who is involved. And, you know, if there if those com communities are happy to share to the general public, that's fine. If not, I'll, you know, presumably we could develop a model just for, you know, that one organization. You know, I'm not sure what form it would take, but I guess it kind of depends on who wants to be involved. <laughs> Well, it sounds like you have a lot of a lot of wonderful projects. This and the documentary, uh, we should call them post tenure projects. Exactly. Um, you go back to it. Um, a minute ago, you mentioned COVID nineteen. So let's talk about COVID nineteen for a second here. Uh, it's certainly something that has impacted all of our lives, um, and it has brought significant challenges, but I think also opportunities, uh, both at a personal and professional level. Um, can you think of some challenges and opportunities that it has brought to to, to your life um, as it relates to food, um, th this period, this pandemic that we are living under? Um, sure. Well, I mean, our my husband and I are very lucky to be able to work from home and be paid a living wage. And um, one thing that has benefited our family is that we actually have time to eat together and also cook together. And um, in a weird way, the pandemic has brought us as a family unit much closer together than we had been before, kind of, you know, driving to and fro from school to job to activity to blah, blah, blah. Um, so so I think what this pandemic has given us is the gift of time, um, a time to savor, time to, you know, um, actually pay attention to what we're eating <laughs> um, and, you know, sharing our meals together at home. So, so that's definitely been a plus, um, apropos uh, of food. And um, I forgot your second question. Sorry. That, that's a plus. Have there been challenges um, that you have encountered um, in terms of, like I said, your personal life, but also your work? Um, in terms of food or just in general? Just in general. <laughs> it's just in general. Oh. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I guess the flip side of being all together all the time is that when do I get my work done? <laughs> When I'm cooking all this stuff, uh, what am I writing? Well, surprisingly, I was able to get quite a bit of writing done because, again, I didn't have to go go out to get my groceries. Like that, the food food procurement apparently took way more time than I realized. Um, and you know, so while I may not be able to sniff every last plum before I buy it, or you know, whatever, um, you know, I used to kind of hand pick my produce. I don't really have an opportunity to do that currently. But, you know, I get to actually cook more often and still get my work done. So that's a plus, I suppose. Then there's a kind of net positive to the entire thing. Yeah, yeah I think for some of us um, working with the community, uh, one, one, of, like, one of my challenges in terms of, of gathering people's stories is that it's become a little difficult to go to people's houses and, 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 and sit down with them and, and record the stories. Um, so that, 
that's, for instance, one of the challenges that I see. Um, I also understand the importance of gathering as many stories as we can right now with the epidemic um, going on. And yet, I don't know how I feel about that because just like you, I am one of those lucky, uh, privileged people that I can work from home, right? And I have a, a living wage. Um, so I've, one of my challenges is how do I go and talk to people who are struggling to get food at the table um, just to get their story when the dailiness of our life has, has been impacted quite differently with this epidemic? Um, so it, for me, it has sort of kind of raised the question as to where is the balance between getting people's stories, because I'm interested in people's stories in, in my own work, um, and respecting people's you know, uh, current situation, I guess, if that's the way to say it. Um, by any chance, speaking, going back to food for a second here and, and COVID-19 and you cooking a lot, are there any new recipes that you've created that mix Pakistani food with Mexican food? Hmm, did I? Well, one cool thing I did was that I cooked via video chat with a colleague of mine in anthropology, Gina Nunez, Dr. Gina Nunez. So she, um, she is of, uh, from the state of Guerrero originally, and she's married to a man from Tunisia. So her food at home is a kind of either amalgam or kind of on parallel tracks uh, of those two cultures. So anyway, I taught her how to make a Pakistani dish via video chat. Basically, it was a chicken curry, like a simple, like home style one. Um, so that was really a fun experience because we, you know, kind of talked about differences, similarities between Mexican and Pakistani cooking styles and cooking approaches and techniques. So um, she taught me about like sazon, like how, <laughs> and that's a topic that you write extensively on as well, about how every woman is, kind of, well, any, anyone who cooks, they're, they're kind of defined in terms of that sazon, right? They're kind of peculiar um, blend of spices and the the kind of effect of their hand, so to speak, mm -hmm. on a dish. Um, so she was telling me about how she does her sazon at home and things like that. And so it was just a, a really nice experience. So that's one cool thing that we did. Um, I did during COVID. And then she taught me how to make salsas on another occasion. So, <laughs> so we had a kind of exchange in that uh, sense. Um, and then just prior to the, actually, um, I'm learning about the way in which anything can fill a taco <laughs> okay. or a burrito. Like I've embraced the, the tortilla as like, I guess, an envelope for whatever I cook. I like that. That's a good metaphor. And yeah, because you cook something at night, then what do you eat for lunch the next day? That thing in a tortilla. That's what I've been doing. <laughs> Are you doing any, any, are you recording yourself and putting your, your, your own recipes, home cooking recipes and, and some sort of social media for us to learn how to cook Pakistani food? Do you, do you want me to do that? That would be great. I mean, I think, <laughs> we, would love, I think we would love to learn how to you, cook some Pakistani dishes at our homes. At least I would. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to have a Zoom chat or something and uh, exchange recipes. We could do it that way or I, I guess I could put something together post-tenure, right? Yes. Pastel. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much. This was wonderful. And hopefully we'll have you back some other time. Post tenure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Meredith. Good talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. El Paso Food Voices was created by Meredith E. Abarca, Professor of Food Studies and Literature at the University of Texas at El Paso. Produced by Adrian Mesa from UTEP's Creative Studios. Music composed by Jake Jacobs. 
to learn more about how food practices, memories, and stories shape a city's history, culture, and its character, please visit us at El Paso Food Voices. Thank you.